Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Today, I am pleased to speak with my friend and Kaiser Permanente colleague, Dr. Nicole Stelter, about resiliency and the importance of destigmatizing mental health conditions and other challenges we may be experiencing during COVID-19. We discuss the definition of what it means to be resilient, cover the mental toll that this pandemic has had on us individually, the importance of psychological safety at work, and how first responders can build resiliency to overcome their day-to-day challenges. Nicole has a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology, a master's degree in counseling psychology, and 25 plus years of experience in the areas of psychologically healthy workplace, workforce behavioral health, and workforce health strategies. Nicole is a licensed psychotherapist and a clinical trauma professional and holds certifications in community and organizational disaster mental health, including training with the U.S. Department of Defense, FEMA, and the U.S. National Incident Management System. Nicole served as a behavioral health officer in the California Army National Guard from 2010 to 2015 with the U.S. Department of Defense's Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program for Soldier and Family Resilience, Force Readiness, and Deployment for the U.S. War on Terror, Operation Enduring Freedom. Can we just start with the basics, which is, can you define what resilience is? We've been hearing a lot about being resilient through times. And then I've, as I was even researching Mm -hmm. this, there's actually a lot out there about resilience at work. And so what does it mean to be Mm -hmm. resilient? Can you help us with just defining that? Sure. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that it's gotten so much more attention. I think it's it's one of the, the, the... better kind of social psychological ideas um, that are, you can have resilient business, you can have resilient family, you can be it, you personally yourself, our interpersonal relationships can be resilient. And it always seems to focus on the idea that um, whatever it is, that resilient person can be, can adapt, can um, be flexible, can um, manage the maybe the negative impact of something that either happens to them or that they're maybe worrying about. Um, what's really important to remember, um, and I hear this a lot um, in work in the workplace space around resilience training or the idea of it is it doesn't mean the absence of, of concern or upset or, um, or, um, you know, the natural kind of human impact that anything would have, you know, getting anxious, feeling nervous, being scared, being angry, um, needing to take a break or time off. That is also resilient, having all of and every of those kind of normal human reactions. So it's important to not carve that out and not to, not to, to, um, get too worried when, when people are just responding in what is really an appropriate human way. Yeah, I saw one definition that I liked a lot, which I think is kind of what you were saying, which is, it's the ability to bounce back. It's really, it's not that, like you Very said, much, we yeah. don't fall. Um, but when we fall, we bounce. And when we, when we do fall, right. we bounce back as well. And I liked that, because I think that 
echoing what you were just saying, we're all going to be struggling at some time. It's not the absence of struggle, mm-hmm. it's the response to it. I think what we're seeing a lot of now is is that, you know, aside from the idea that, you know, for some people having the expectation that I wouldn't have any upset, is that falling piece where, yes, I'm going to bounce back, but I might take a longer, I might sit there for a minute, <laughs> or I might fall and just take a breather. It might be a little bit, the bounce back might have a more of a slope. Um, it's like doing reps in the gym. You know, you can really only do so many before you need to stop and take a rest, you know, um, between sets and the, um, you know, psyche is a lot like that. And I like that you compared it to those reps in a gym, that it is a muscle, it sounds like. It's a, a psychic mm-hmm. muscle um, that can be strengthened. Um, and right. I think it's also a skill. I think we learn um, we learn by doing sometimes. We learn almost, you know, kind of academically. You can read about it. You can take classes. You can learn by doing and having going through different kinds of events. It's one of the the greatest kind of gifts of going through something either or what can be anyway, going through something traumatic or really trying, whether it's as a business, as a leader, as just a a mom, you know, any of those things, you build resilience by going through those hard things. You can prepare and inoculate yourself against stress and all that great stuff, but going through the experiences, um, especially those that are really difficult or just kind of suck (laughs) generally, it's, it can be really getting to the other side of that and being able to, to um, kind of tap into that increased sense of self and agency and all those great things. That's, you know, finding the gift of going through um, hard times is, is a really healthy piece of it. Yep. I just want to transition over to work that I know that you've done around a specific employee group, which is first responders. And mm-hmm. are there challenges different and and how so? Why why this work around first mm-hmm. responders and and helping them with the work that they're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um normally when we think of of well really forever kind of part of that occupational culture is to not engage in in mental health care or addiction medicine or substance abuse and um, treatment, those kinds of things. And and in the past few years, I think what you can see at many levels, whether it's municipalities, counties, state, um, whether it's fire service, um, um, sheriff's departments, corrections, there's there's been so much more attention paid to emotional well-being, uh, support for recovery from substance dependence or, or abuse. And, and really a more of a willingness to just try to talk about some of this or introduce it even at an academy before people get out onto the field. Um, And that's great. I mean, it it doesn't, I mean, there is just, there's a long standing culture there that again, we're not, you know, it'll be years, but chipping away at that in, in kind of just normalizing the conversation, giving, you know, recruits or, or um, new staff, the ability, just even the basic wording and, growing fluency around it is, is wonderful. That said, um, there's no doubt that those are some of the most stressful, 
um, same as I think uh, frontline healthcare workers, um, especially right now, um, what's going on, I think, in, in our different communities, it's, um, I think it's just, it defies my understanding sometimes of how, and I, um, I have family who are in law enforcement and, and have worked with especially law enforcement and fire service and then the military in my outpatient clinical practice. And it's often really amazing to listen to what motivates you to continue to go to do this kind of work. Um, that is so stressful and threatening in different ways and, and hard on your, you know, your, your spirit, your, your mind, your body. And that's even a more important question right now in my mind is in addition to then all of the normal risks that come with those, that work you have, at least on the, the, you know, law enforcement side, what's in the media definitely looks like less support a lot of the time or a lot more question, a lot more concern, a lot more just, you know, basically coverage that you just wouldn't have to have thought about or been a part of before. So how do you continue to motivate yourself and cope even further with something that is, was already really difficult? Um, and so, and I was actually just having a conversation with my family member about, I, I tell me about how you're even showing up for work. How do you, how are you keeping yourself healthy and how do you keep your colleagues healthy? How are you guys supporting each other? And like, like any, whether it's an organization or any, or a family or a, a group of people, you know, under attack um, in different ways, getting more isolated is sometimes the, the immediate response. And that's really, um, that's really not good from a health perspective. Um, and with mental health, it is especially, I think, um, detrimental, both in the short and the long term. So there are a lot of challenges to the first responder community getting getting care just in that kind of that cultural and climate sense. I think the other thing are just some brass tacks around making sure that, you know, there aren't a lot of, there are a growing number, but we are already, the pool of mental health professionals is pretty small. And then if you take a subset of those who are willing and able and competent working with first responder community, it gets even smaller. I can imagine. And um, yeah, and so much of what a first responder needs to feel comfortable with is that you as a provider get, are, are comfortable with their, you know, views of the world and how they might talk and that you understand as a provider that... Um, their work is a huge piece of their identity and seeking care threatens that. So it threatens their livelihood, their um, agency to, to um, protect themselves and their family and support their family financially and is a major threat to what is a huge chunk of their identity. And it's, if you don't understand that as a provider um, or the, the, first responder doesn't doesn't mm, doesn't know that you that kind of that you know and that you're competent and can provide that level of understanding and awareness it ends up being another reason why they wouldn't seek care so it just further stigmatizes yeah among that population is also i can imagine the 
desire to not bring their burden back to the family, back to their friends. Very much so. That this is, um, it's hard to explain. I don't want to worry you. I don't want to tell you about my day. Yeah. Yeah, Very Um, much so. And I'm not sure how much you get it, even if I do. Um, And which I think also then leads to that isolation, um, leads to sometimes Mm -hmm. maladaptive ways of responding to this Mm -hmm. um, that can also be problematic because um, if, if I'm going to be doing things that aren't helpful, um, that could then interfere with my job and become more stressful. So it can be this vicious mm-hmm. cycle as people try to help themselves, try to help the people around them, but keep um, painting themselves further and further into a corner as, as their world gets smaller. And, and this has been such a challenge for so many people around those first responders as well. I'm thinking of healthcare right now where literally, mm-hmm. um, they have, they're isolated by PPE, their personal protective equipment. Um, they're possibly right. being exposed when they go to work to an illness that can range from mild to severe to deadly. They don't want to bring it home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so keeping mm-hmm. people safe around them literally at this time is so much more of a challenge than, again, we've ever had as a community, as a worldwide community around these kinds of spaces. Yeah. Say more, if you would, around that psychologically healthy workplace versus that mm-hmm. psychologically healthy workforce. And I just want to call that out because sure. I think the other thing that can happen is that part of what we've seen during this pandemic is, oh, I don't have a commute. I'm working from home. I'm lucky enough to have a job. Isn't it a great time for a self-improvement project? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do all of these <laughs> things. Or even I should be doing better than I am. I, I actually acknowledge that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in a really rough place. This is stressful. Um, but But I should just buck up and be resilient. And I think that understanding the difference between the individual in the system and then the system itself is really helpful for us as individuals, but then again, as leaders in companies to understand how is it that we also help people understand that difference? Mm. Here's our responsibility, here's yours. And when there's still a gap, what are the options that people have to seek help? Okay, in five words or less. Yes. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> yeah. so, it's actually one of my favorite topics. So I, I joke about the five words or less because I can kind of go on and on. So I'll look for you to give me the hook. So <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really, there is a significant difference between workplace and workforce. And if you think about the things that we do to keep our employees and our colleagues, you know, healthy productive, um, happy and engaged, building their careers, hopefully, you know, with us and growing with companies, all of that kind of good stuff. Um, there are things you do that are in the environment and, and, and we, and it's not just culture and I'll talk about that, but, but culture is one of those ones that people kind of think of first. And then there's the workforce or employee level kind of intervention. That is about individual, you know, mental health, um, substance abuse, those kinds of things. And 
the way that you would define a psychologically healthy workplace is an environment that, or a business, a team, you know, could be as small as a team, could be a department, um, but it's a, it's a place or an environment that you're working in that doesn't, um, A, you know, make you sick. So it doesn't create uh, mental health issues or perhaps an addiction issue for the employees. Or, you know, number two, it doesn't exacerbate um, a condition or an illness or a predisposition you bring to the table as an individual employee. And that's that's kind of what you're shooting for. Um, and the workforce level interventions are going to look like, um, you know, benefit design or program design, um, well-being, um, pools, things like that. It's almost, if you think of, um, kind of in the occupational health and safety space, we do the, we do the same thing, except we do it from our a body perspective. So if it's a workforce level intervention, we're making sure that people have the right helmet or they're wearing steel toe boots when they need to be, they have the right equipment, uh, that that's kind of kept up to speed and, and maintained appropriately. And so for Those right now, that might level. look like making sure that people feel safe at work with a ple- plexiglass divider, or if they're working from home, sure. they have um, the ergonomic sure. chair that they're now sitting in instead of their dining room chair. Exactly. So it's exactly. all of those. And con- the work. Yes, it's the conditions of the right. workspace that makes people mm-hmm. able to do their job, which includes psychological right. safety. Exactly. And I think the work, the workplace level interventions are about, um, so just take it, take the ergonomic chair as an, as an example. Um, and essentially, you know, deploying or delivering those things is individual employee health and safety. But the policy that is communicated and designed deliberately to communicate to new employees that you, as a part of your onboarding, you will have an ergonomic assessment that helps us set you up with the right equipment. Here is what it looks like. This is why we do it because we, there's risk management. We care about, you know, your comfort level getting work. So that kind of program level, that's the yes, workplace a system. Mm-hmm. piece of it. Yeah. And even if, and the, the other thing to keep in mind that's different about the workplace level interventions is I don't have to be individually impacted as an employee um, by a workplace or a program level um, intervention to still be impacted by it because I can see, oh, they're taking care of, of Deb. She's getting, you know, an ergonomic assessment. They're watching out for her, her comfort and her productivity. So there is a ripple effect uh, from a social psychology perspective of me watching others benefit or be taken care of by a workplace level intervention. That's true for safety. It's very much also true for psychological health. Yeah, there's there's always observers and watchers of kind of what is really happening mm-hmm. versus what we say is happening, um, and it, and interpreting sure. that. Yeah, which is why also uh, and um, when we're doing kind of consultations with customers around um, or with organizations for. Um, psychologically healthy workplace, we underscore deliberate communication. That is one of the, you may not do anything else different with what you've got kind of going on in your workplace. If you change though, how you talk about it, that is a, a, that 
it can't be, I don't think, underestimated for the positive impact. We we don't do enough of that, um, but you leave it open to interpretation if you don't. And number two, you don't get as much of a of a health or a psychological health impact with your employees if you skip that part. Yep. It can kind of undermine all the other great stuff you might have in place. So we spend a lot of time talking about that with different organizations. And and within that category, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you talked about looking around and what we can see and how people are being taken care of. There's also mm-hmm. a lot that we don't see. And sometimes what we don't see right. are the different needs that people have True. that they might express in a different way. They might be transparent about in a different way, or maybe they're opaque about it. Mm. And and yet again, as we're in this together, how do we how do we help people with those needs that differ between us? Especially sometimes when you can't have transparency about how you're meeting people's needs. So if you could maybe talk about both the right. challenges and some of the um, mm. actions that we might be able to take as we think about the individuality of showing up at, at work with the different needs that we have. Yeah, that's a really great question and a, and a real challenge because part of what we're talking about to some extent is, is ableism and the stigma of, you know, for example, the neurodiverse community and our, you know, employees who are on the autism spectrum or have attention deficit disorder. I'm part of the neuro, I'm myself, I'm part of the neurodiverse community. I have my oldest son has uh, high functioning autism. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how he fits or how I fit in different scenarios or what kind of help do I need to ask for at work? Um, and I can do that because I have a good relationship with my leader and I have trust about what happens to the information I share. Um, that is, I think, part of the biggest challenge is not so much keeping the information confidential because obviously there are laws around that and it's just an ethical, you know, consideration. I think nobody would, you know, everybody agrees about that, but it's also the respect I get that when I, when I bring something up and good communication skills, when as a leader, if someone comes to you and discloses something about their mental health or their neurodiversity or perhaps another disability or, or difference that you didn't know about how you respond is, is really key um, and can really make or break for that person. What, what kind of how they can engage going forward. One of the more difficult things though, is you, nobody gets to, gets to benefit from my positive interaction with my boss right? Nobody else gets to see how gracious or respectful or genuinely interested she was, those kinds of things. Um, Nobody gets to see that interaction, and rightfully so. And at the same time, how do you, you know, how do you kind of share the positive outcome of it? Some people are, are also more comfortable being open, so they might be a part of a of a um, community that is, for example, like a business resource group in an organization. So 
there's openness around diversity that includes then those that are perhaps um, that are either disabled in a different way or or whatever that looks like. There's that's part of the diversity conversation already, and so there's a little bit more openness and there's the expectation. Um, for that because the organization supports it in that way, even if it's a little bit less deliberately communicated. And and um, I see that, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I also see that that can be situational. And what I'm thinking about is in conversations that I've had with employers and colleagues, people are worried about their jobs right now. And it's mm-hmm. one thing when you have a sense of security, that there seems to be openness, that there's out. support. Um, and, you know, we're valuing our differences. It's really one thing when things are going well to be able to feel like I can be open and express that mm-hmm. and no one's going to see me differently or think of me differently versus, right. you know what, no one can even see that I'm working. Um, what are they going to interpret this by? Um, There have Mm -hmm. been layoffs and I want to keep my job. So I'm not going to actually let on that I need this or this would help me in my job. So I think that it's, it's hard to think about it. It's so situational. It's not just, again, creating that culture or those conversations or those policies, but there's even bigger influences onto that whole thing Very. when we have a shared or an unshared insecurity. I think at this point, what I, w- what I would, if, if an employer asked me, you know, sh- how should I address this um, when I don't know the prevalence or the, you know, the N, I, I have no idea of really knowing because there are so many of us who might be I- invisible in that way, who might have perhaps come out before. And now, as you said, not, I mean, and to be just as a personal example, if I hadn't already had some of these conversations, you know, a year or two ago with my colleagues and, and um, where I work, I would not be having them now. I would be very, um, and I hate to say that, but it is kind of the truth. It's, it's scary to have those more of those threats to your kind of um, your ability to, to provide for your family and yourself. And what I would say now, I think, is to, to say it, it's a fair assumption that in your workforce, there are people who feel like they can't ask for help for certain things and provide, try to be as, as open as you can in communication. People may not even take you up on it, on your offer of support or, or whatever it is, but they will hear you be fluent and be open and be interested and authentic about it. And that can go a long way. Um, but right now there are, I think making kind of an educated guess about prevalence and that it exists, whether you can, you know, put your finger on it or not is, is a fair guess. So one of the things that people say has been nice is, um, almost getting to know people in a different way as they work from home sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. I've heard of companies <laughs> mm-hmm. um, doing bring your child or bring your dog to work day. Everyone gets to meet everybody. But the the hidden side of that for a lot of women is, oh, so again, they're still the primary caregiver in a lot of households. And there's 
a lot of kids not going to school. And yet I'm working full time. Mm -hmm. I've got to homeschool the kids or get them set up with school. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the, the difference in distribution of the work and the potential for burnout among these women who are working is again, one of those hidden aspects where you just don't under quite understand what people are living with. And yet it Mm -hmm. has a cumulative load on their ability to persist, to bounce back, to think straight, um, and affects all aspects as well. Is there anything that we should be thinking of differently around this population? Yeah, I, I think you really hit on something important is, again, not assuming um, that working from home is you know, the sweet gig, it seems like it could be. Um, and I think the other things that we've seen along the same vein is where we've seen upticks in, in, in violence um, and kind of overall relationship, you know, growing relationship dissatisfaction. Um, there's just a lot going on in that space that then falls to, in this case, the, you know, the, the um, mom or, or, or wife in this example, or the female partner, and um, and it's something that we've talked about in in organizational psych for sure. Certainly, in in um, if any marriage counselors out there, this is the thing that always comes up as an, as a kind of the distribution of of work and workload at home, and it's just it's always something to kind of talk through and manage, and some are better than others about it. Um, individually, as a woman, I might be better than my than my spouse, but um, sometimes that's not true, and sometimes I've never even thought to bring this up, and now I'm at a, now I'm like way overloaded, and I need to find a way to bring it up. Um, I think from an employer perspective, again, acknowledging that you know, you can assume even if they don't bring it up, there are people having these kinds of at-home struggles. And so open that door, find a way to open the door and say, we, you know, I know there are people, you know, it could be that simple. I know that working at, from home is oftentimes more difficult than commuting in and working from your desk. And so find, you know, being deliberate about that and opening that door to invite conversation or asking for help is important. I think the other thing is, is, and some employers I think are starting to do this, is looking at um, flexible work scheduling um, and trying to get more creative and be more flexible about some of that. Um, there was a, I was reading an article earlier today about um, a, uh, a woman ex- executive who um, her colleagues gave her a hard time about sending um, email at one o'clock in the morning. And at the same time, that was literally when she could do it mm-hmm. because of the the demands on her time from her, you know, from school and her kids going back to school. And, and so a little bit more kind of understanding around an expectation um, you know, sometimes we think we're being helpful saying, you know, gosh, you don't need to be doing email at one o'clock in the morning. It's it's okay. You know, wait till tomorrow. But sometimes that's not as helpful as we think we're being right now. Yep. Um, 
there might be a really good reason somebody is spending email at one o'clock. And if anything, it's maybe an opportunity as somebody who cares about them or who is their leader to check in about. Hey, you know, why are you sending out emails like at one you. in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that yeah, works well I'm, for me I'm or what because, that might mean. yeah, exactly. And sure. just, and, and checking it out before making an assumption about what that means for that person. Yeah. I think that's part of what's really challenging in this, in this space now too, is, is just how we're making those assumptions. And before that wasn't good. Right. <laughs> to make assumptions. Now it's really not. And where people are, to your point earlier, where they're more hesitant to reach out for help yeah. or, or flexibility because they're worried about, you know, I don't want to be too much of a problem for my employer because I'm seeing layoffs happening and I worry about keeping my job and, um, you know, finding a way to, to make it okay to do that might take a little bit more work and being deliberate right now. Yeah, absolutely. What are you doing to stay resilient? Curating topics <laughs> with my family. Um, because if you're in a bubble with, with family or, or, you know, I, again, not seeing people as socially as we might have been before, um, you run, you can, you you run out of people to talk to about things. Um, and so you, there's a lot more pressure on those fewer relationships. Yes. So taking good care of that and, you know, being deliberate about, yep, you know what, this is off topic for tonight. <laughs> I'm nice. not talking to you about X, Y, Z because, uh, yeah, I'm not feeling like I want to have that conversation with you and, and I don't, we need to find a way to decrease the load, not increase it on something that's, you know, picking up the slack of missing out on other social interactions. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we try to do is uh, share something we learned. Um, you know, this is, mm -hmm. and not learned about what's going on in the world <laughs> of news, but what did you learn Please. today? Yes. Um, and, and, and where, where did your curiosity take you today? And there really are deliberate ways to feed the soul that are different for each of us and tapping back mm -hmm. into those things that maybe when we were younger, maybe it was 10 years ago, five years ago, but, but what are those things that we're not doing now that still might bring joy if we were to revisit them? And sure. there's a lot that people are discovering in that space as well. There's an interesting, and I can look it up separately and get it to you, but there was an article that Jennifer Christian Herman and I were looking at about psychological PPE. Mm. And I, I work um, in disaster mental health. And part of what you do in a disaster deployment is you are doing um, daily team check-ins, which a lot of us do. We have huddles and things like that, at, you know, in our, in our organizations or our departments, but being very specifically about um, gratitude or something that is about how will you specifically take care of yourself today um, because we're surrounded by the other stuff. We don't need to talk more about that so much, but we do need to find a way to be kind of mindful in those moments about, to your example, what did you learn? What did you... Um, you know, what are you most concerned about seeing today when you're at work or you're most, you know, and how, how can we support you in that? What was the hardest and what was the best thing about your shift today out on, in the, you know, disaster space, so to speak? So um, any of those kinds of check-ins and reminders to be mindful um, 
about all the experience, like those are, those can be really powerful. Sometimes the smallest things can be so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will say that um, I, the best thing about my day has been this conversation. So it's really been a joy to talk to you. Oh, yeah, that's so kind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Me too. It's been, it's, um, I have a lot of passion for this space and it's nice to be able to kind of think and talk about it at a, at a, a broader level. Anything that you wish I would have asked you and I didn't or any parting words? The one parting thing I would say is just, again, kind of a reminder about, you know, there's the workplace and there's the workforce and both are important to take care of psychologically in the same ways that you pay attention to them from a, a safety perspective or environmental safety perspective. Um, and that wherever possible being, you know, giving your, as an individual employee or as a leader, um, normalizing and um, just giving, you know, approaching the default with kindness, with some grace, you know, watch what your assumptions are, try to be as aware of those as you can be, no matter what the setting or the context is. Um, those are really, there's not a whole lot we have control over. Those are the things so that we can grow some mindfulness around and some some agency around and, and that those things can be really helpful from not just an emotional well-being perspective, but from supporting people who are um, dealing with um, mental health issue or with addiction or um, any of the other challenges that are really out there now. Yeah, that's such wonderful advice. Be kind. We all need more kindness right now in this world. Again, thank you so much. Um, have a good yeah. afternoon. Go for a walk. Um, you too. Journal. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and get some hugs in. Do some yoga. Yes, for sure. You too. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Views podcast with me, Deb Friesen. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation, and we'll share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.